The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Those in positions of power, the elites, are able to manipulate society for their benefit and believe they are entitled to impose their worldview of reality on humankind. Tonight, we discuss the octopus of global control and its eight tentacles, which are wrapped around humanity, and how uncovering the truth about the deep state can set you free. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. Today's special guest is Charlie Robinson, the author of The Octopus of Global Control, a controversial and hilarious book that features the opinions of over four, 500 experts that expose and explain the century-long plan for world domination by the global elite. He had a front-row seat to the fraud and corruption in the mortgage industry during his 10-year career in Las Vegas real estate. And he credits John Perkins' book Confessions of an Economic Hitman, a veteran of this program, as the final piece of the puzzle that helped him to really see how the American government operates. Charlie is an entrepreneur with a marketing degree from the University of Southern California and agrees with comedian Bill Hicks that everyone in marketing should kill themselves. Charlie Robinson joins us directly from somewhere in the United States. Hello, Charlie, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks for being with me today. I just finished the book, and we are in the safe wavelength in many, many, many ways. But let me just mention this at the beginning. After reading the book, two philosophers come to mind. Actually, two philosopher comedians come to mind now while reading the book. George Carlin and Bill Hicks. Were you influenced by them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, two guys that were ahead of their time that were criticized for being a little bit raw, um, but they couldn't help it because they were right. You know, when you're right and you know it, you know, you don't worry about everybody else's opinion. I love George Carlin. I I, I remember clearly that, that spot where he was on um, Bill Maher's show and he just demolishes this idiotic politician that's sitting next to him, telling him he needs to pipe down and learn something. And he, he proceeds to explain how the elections are rigged and how the people in control, um, it's a selection process, not an election process, and that uh, they don't want you to, they don't want the common people to be informed about this. And you see the politician trying to fight back. and It was, it was embarrassing. It was too easy for, for Carlin to dismantle him. And I, and I liked that. I liked that, um, you know, George Carlin sort of was used like verbal judo. You know, he took their words and used it against them. Uh, their leverage, their power, and used it against them and embarrassed a lot of people. And I, and you, you watch a, a stand-up special from 2004, 2005 of George Carlin, and it's 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 scary how accurate he was. He saw it. And there was a point in his life where he sort of turned a little bit more from being optimistic to more on the dark side where he said, listen, I don't have a, I, I don't have a stake in this anymore. Um you know, I'm just uh, watching everybody. I'm watching the country circle the drain, and and um, 
And I can understand how you would get to that point to to be spending, you know, two decades of his life telling the truth in a funny way, pointing out the inconsistencies and the flaws with the with the way the system's set up and then watching people do nothing about it. I can understand why you would say, you know what, I've done my part. I'm just going to sit back here and watch the show. Can any comedian today, Charlie, make a living since most of them, you know, whatever they say these days, people become offended with anything that you and I can say. Imagine a comedian. What's what can they possibly do these days? Well, if they, it depends on what their goal is. If their goal is to be a famous comedian with their own HBO special and the lead in uh, some movies and to go the sort of Eddie Murphy route, they can't do it. They can't do it in a way that would be very genuine. If you don't care about that and you're willing to say whatever's on your mind and uh, not worry about trying to get corporate sponsors or corporate approval or network or media, major media approval, then you've got a chance. You might not make as much money, but you'll certainly have a uh, have some uh, respect and credibility. I see somebody like Jimmy Dore. His show is on YouTube. It's hilarious. And um, and he's just he's a stand up comedian that got a you know, started his own video podcast. And it's and it's brilliant. And um, of course, Joe Rogan, too. And he he has done a nice job of of mixing not just uh, not just his MMA guys from his background in, in that, but also bringing in scientists and sort of pop culture people and comedians. And it's a nice blend. So if you're somebody that uh, that is interested, let's say you're somebody that's interested in MMA fighters and you watch a Joe Rogan watch his podcast to see that and you accidentally get exposed to someone like Randall Carlson or Graham Hancock, then you're like, wow, I never even knew about these guys. This is kind of interesting too. And it's funny. I went to, speaking of Joe Rogan, I went to his stand-up show in Denver about a year and a half ago. And he, when he came out, he says, I want everyone to raise your hand if you're here because of your love of MMA and probably half the crowd raise your hand. The other, you know, the rest of you, are you here because I had Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on my show this week? And the other half of the room raised their hand. And the one thing that was in common between all of them was that the place smelled like pot. <laughs> well, which is something that he discusses quite frequently, too. Now, you were in the mortgage industry. I was in the financial services industry for many years. So we both worked in the belly of the beast. And now, in our own ways, we're deconstructing the the beast. Now, tell me more about your journey and how and when your Eureka moment happened. <laughs> well, I'd love to tell you that on the morning of September 11th, uh, 2001, I understood fully that it was a false flag plot, but that would be inaccurate. I didn't. It took a couple years. Like I said, I worked in I worked in new home sales in Las Vegas for a long time. I remember during the boom and also on the bust, but I remember <laughs> the epicenter uh, of the boom and the bust. And couldn't forward. have been any. When the big short came out, the book, I read the book and then I watched the movie and it was like, um, you know, I, I felt like I was there again yep. because I was I was involved. So on our on the real estate side, I won't name the company, but um, we were informed that we had a certain amount of incentive money. Think of it like a pool of money. Uh, so you'd have one hundred thousand dollars of incentive money and a buyer comes in. You could that buyer could just take that hundred thousand and wipe it right off the price of the house. So a five hundred thousand dollar house goes to four hundred thousand and you do the deal like that. Or we were instructed that we could take that pool of $100,000 and we could say, well, you know, the husband has a credit card and has a car loan and then the wife has a credit card and a car loan. What if we use that money to pay all those off? Now you don't have as much debt. Now your debt to income ratio looks higher and now you're qualified to buy this house. 
well, that's illegal. And I had the audacity to raise my hand in a sales meeting. And when that was being told, we were told that that's what we were to do from now on. And I said, I asked my boss, have, have we cleared this with our legal department? And his response, I'll never forget it was, I'd rather beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. And I thought, whoa, we're in trouble here. Um, I have a real estate license at, uh, at stake and I'm not interested in doing that. And uh, I was later fired, not for that. Of course, they don't fire you for things like that. They find technicality. Right. And then, so, but I knew, I knew what it was about. So I, I, you know, I saw that, I saw that fraud. I saw that insanity. I sold 12 houses in one day. I mean, that is unsustainable and, and it's fantastic, but it's, it's, uh, it, you knew that you were building a huge, um, a house of cards that was appropriate for Las Vegas that was built on very uh, rocky foundation. So I understood, <clears throat> I was understanding the mortgage fraud. In 2007, though, I was heading out to Thailand to go on a scuba diving trip. I was really excited. Uh, it's going to get away and, you know, get away from the madness. And my buddy said, here, read this book. And he gave me Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. And I it changed my life. I I understood at that point about 9/11 I was you know I was familiar with now the the concept of false flags and I and I knew that I mean everybody knew that the wars were you know the Afghanistan and Iraq wars were really screwy and they they never really seemed to pencil out for people that had you know the ability for critical thinking so um but when I read that book it explained to me how the World Bank and the IMF are used as a tool to put uh countries in debt and it's not that different from the way like the mafia puts you in debt. You want to, you know, they come look, if you owe money, they come looking for you. And if you don't have the money, they can either break your kneecaps or they'll say, hey, why don't we, uh, you know, like in, uh, in Goodfellas, you know, <laughs> why don't we take over your nightclub, you know, and then burn it to the ground. So um, with the IMF and the World Bank, they would get these third world countries into um, – They'd sell them on the concept of a hydroelectric power plant as an example and saying, listen, you're out here in the middle of nowhere in Ecuador. You're going to have a dam. It's going to generate electricity. You'll have the ability to have lights on at night. Your children will be able to read at night. This is going to help everyone. You know, you'll get there's money to be made here and we'll bring you into the to the 20th century at this time. And we're talking about like the 1960s and 70s. Um, and it's going to only cost you this amount, and the debt service will be offset by the the revenue that you you make. It's a it's a no brainer. Well, it's a rigged game because they know it's not going to cost that much. It's going to cost way more to build this hydroelectric plant, and you and they know that it's not going to generate the revenues they promised. So it's a mathematical certainty that this dam isn't going to pencil out, no matter what they said. Now the money didn't flow from the IMF to Ecuador. It flew. It, flowed from the IMF to the multinational engineering firms. Like in the case of John Perkins, it was a company called Maine, but now you would think of it as like Bechtel or Halliburton. And so the money never really touches Ecuador. Maybe the president or the guy who signs off on it gets a nice bank account in the Cayman Islands. But for, for everyone else, they're, they're stuck holding the bag on this debt that they can never repay. And as it becomes more clear, then they, you know, they come back to him and say, gee, you know, it's a, it's a shame you can't afford this this debt, but I think we might have a solution, and that might be for them to privatize their lumber industry and sell it to one of their buddies, or it might be that they want them to vote their way on a UN resolution, or it might be that they want to 
want the country to allow them, the U.S. to put a military base there or something like that, something bad, something that doesn't benefit the country at all. And that's how the game is played. And if you if you play ball, a couple people get rich, the rest of the country get enslaved, and um, that's empire. And we're not shouldn't be too surprised about that if you look back on the the history of the British Empire. You know, it, it was never it was never uh, an altruistic endeavor for them. They weren't going to uh, to you know enlighten people around the world. They were going to steal their resources. And, and and the United States has done a very good job over the last fifty years of convincing the population that they are the good guys and they are spreading democracy. Democracy. You mean spreading democracy by dropping bombs on people. I mean, it's insanity. The fact that people still say like America, love it or leave it land of the free home of the brave. It's, it's a total lie. It's a total fabricate. We're not the home of the free and we're not the, we're not the home of the brave or the land of the free or any of those things. We're the problem. I, and I take no pleasure in saying that as an American, I don't like to think of us like that, but I have, I have to be honest. That's what I see when I see this, empire building that's going on and 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 they never learn you know the the, the people in ramping up the empires they never understand that they spread themselves too thin usually militarily and it crumbles like rome. it's, it's going to happen again like rome and uh, you know if, if countries don't play ball we'll take uh, iran as an example in the 50s Mossadegh didn't play ball what happens we send the shackles and uh If Torrijos in Panama doesn't play ball, we send them Allende in Chile, and the stories go on and on and on. And we're watching it again right now. So for people that say, they'll read that book and they'll go, oh, well, yeah, it's so obvious that they wanted Mossadegh out of power. Well, look at, so look at what they're doing to Assad. And Gaddafi, before Assad, Gaddafi. Yeah, Gaddafi was a bad guy, and then he was a good guy, and then he was a dead guy, and then Hillary Clinton gloated about killing him. You know, and it's, it's you, you have to want when the United States when there's a full court press between the United States government and the mainstream media to demonize a certain person. Uh, obviously, right now it's it's Putin, number one, and it's Assad and it's um, Kim Jong Un. You have to wonder why that is. You have to under you have to wonder, okay, maybe I can understand with Russia. Maybe they say, well, Russia's always been our enemy. Uh, maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. I don't know. But we have a problem. We have to go invade Syria because why? Because they're, they're going to hurt us. It, it doesn't make any sense. They're, or we have to bomb Yemen because they're the poorest country on earth and they deserve to be bombed. I mean, I don't, their, their rationale for doing this makes no sense until you take a step back and you go, hmm, let's see, who doesn't have a central bank? That would right. be North Korea. That would be Iran. And that would be Cuba. And who didn't have a central bank a couple of years ago, but now Libya. does Afghanistan, <laughs> Libya, Iraq. You know, so this is this is what happens. And uh, in the book, what I tried to do, I brought I put quotes from 500 different people that were involved in some way or had an opinion on some of the most important events in world history, because I think it's important to hear their words, people that were involved in it. And, and understand what they're saying. Because a lot of times the words that they said, you're not made aware of because they're, what they're saying is, is they're painting, you know, they're, they're exposing themselves as being complicit in crimes or murders or whatever. 
and you hear these quotes and you go, that can't be right. How, if that's right, I would never hear about it. Well, I don't know. You're, you haven't heard about David Rockefeller talking about confessing to being a, a wanting to put together a, a one world government because you're getting your news from the mainstream media and they're not going to talk about that because he owned, owned so much of the, of the portion of the media. So you're not going to hear these things a lot of time. Doesn't mean they're not being said. Doesn't mean that they're not out there. It's just that you have to dig around. So between the, the quotes from all these people, the seriousness of these topics, I lightened it up with my um, sort of dark sense of humor to try and help people get get through it. And I came about this because, you know, like a lot of people, I had uh, I had ruined a Thanksgiving dinner before by bringing up Building 7 of 9 Oh, you too? You did that oh, yeah. too? Your family? <laughs> yep. Yep. And what I realized is that when you're at the table and you're making your case and you know it pretty well – but you can't show evidence of it. You wind up sounding disjointed and a bit insane. So with the book, one of my purposes of it was I thought, well, you know what? This would be for somebody that has blown up their Thanksgiving dinner once and then decided, you know what? I- I'm not interested in in debating these topics with people. This book can serve as um, something that a person could buy for their family, their friends, or somebody that, that has sort of – not understanding this in a way. And, uh, and the reason why it's good is that it covers, you know, like 50 different topics in here. So you never know which is going to be the one topic or one event that triggers someone to go, whoa, hang on a second. That doesn't sound right to me. And because in my case, it was building seven on nine 11 that you see that come down and everyone just goes, uh, that looks weird. And I'm not a structural engineer and I'm not a physicist, but I don't need to be to understand that that's a controlled demolition. And once you get that, then you start to go down the proverbial rabbit hole because you, you see how that's connected to something else. And you go, well, if that's a lie, then I wonder about this. And if that's a lie, and so it just sort of builds from there and there. So with regards to the book, you know, you can, someone can read it and maybe not, not have an attachment to any of the events until maybe they get to the Boston bombing and they go, oh my God, I didn't know anything about that. You mean they tweeted, the Boston Globe tweeted twice before the bombing, saying that there was going to be a drill simulating a bombing in the same area at the same address, and then no, it before <laughs> before you go to Boston, let's stay with nine eleven for a moment because I I heard from somebody lately who told me that Building Seven there was supposed to be another plane to crash into it, and that was supposed to be Flight ninety three, the one that quote unquote crashed Shanksville, which is no evidence of a crash there, but apparently a rogue. Uh, I don't know, probably a, a military pilot shut it down even after refusing the orders to stand down. And that one blew in the sky, and that's why you could only find fragments. But that plane was supposedly that the one it. that, that was good. supposed to go there because they stored and run all the information about and run and a bunch of other stuff was in that building. Yeah, and Giuliani's Correct. Uh, indestructible Headquarters. fortress was there and you talked to you see the guys from uh, like Barry Jennings and one of the was one of the witnesses that was there who of course wound up getting murdered um he was talking about how they got to that place the uh the 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 command center and they walked in and they said it was totally empty except there were cups of hot coffee still there as if people had just gotten the order to get out of there so you have to say well well, with regard to 9-11 and Building 7 and all that stuff looks kind of fishy, but that doesn't prove anything. Well, then I guess why would Rudy Giuliani and his whole crew not be in their indestructible fortress? Uh, why would they be somewhere else? Why would every single person not be there? 
and then you see that 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 building comes down. Well, now it makes sense because uh, somebody told him you don't want to. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.